0: Introduction. This audiobook, produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland, tells the story of the remarkable archaeological discoveries that were made in advance of the construction of the N22 Tralee Bypass. The Tralee Bypass and the Tralee to Bailagra Link Road journey across 13.5 kilometres of one of the richest cultural landscapes in southwest Ireland. Along the route of the new road, archaeologists from Rubicon Heritage Services and Irish Archaeological Consultancy discovered and excavated a total of 33 sites. The powerful, diverse and often unique insights they gathered helped to inform us about life in the past in the Vale of Tralee. Today's Lee Valley, where our story is set, is dominated by the constant bustle and buzz of Tralee, the largest town in County Kerry. But in the fields beyond, a quieter landscape still holds dominion. Here, farmers tend their pastures, much as they have always done in the flat, low-lying valley nestled between the Stacks and Sleedmish Mountains. Despite their obvious differences, these contrasting environments... Both owe their origins to a single source, the River Lee. This river has been the central character in the area's human history from the moment the first Mesolithic people turned their paddles upstream in exploration. In the story to come, we will meet a procession of their descendants, men, women and children who called the River Valley home across almost 6,000 years. Among them are the pioneering farmers who laboured on the region's first houses, and the holy men and women who bent their communities towards monumental achievements. We will encounter people who bore witness to the arrival of the first metals in the Lee Valley, and draw back a veil on how they parted with their dead. We will step through the thresholds of modest homes that stood at the dawn of Christianity in Ireland, and end our journey with the abandoned cottages of the Great Famine's tragic victims. Each section of our audiobook examines an aspect of life in a specific period of time. But it begins more than 6,500 years ago, with a young woman gazing across the Atlantic's waves from atop a Kerry beach. The Lee Valley's First Communities 6,500 years ago, a woman sat gazing out towards the vast expanse of the Atlantic from the sands of Ferritus Cove on the Dinka Peninsula. Around her, members of her hunter-gatherer community were hard at work, collecting the rich bounty of shellfish that drew them back to the bay year after year. While the passage of millennia and the efforts of countless generations have wrought dramatic changes on the land she knew, the view out to sea she enjoyed has altered little. It was much the same in the 1980s when archaeologists unearthed the remains of her community's labours, and with them the earliest known evidence for human habitation in Kerry. It was these Mesolithic, or Middle Stone Age people who began to travel from the coast into the wooded interior, using as their highways rivers and valleys like that of the Lee. These highly mobile Mesolithic communities often left little behind, and it was not until 6,000 years ago that human hands made a lasting impression on the ground. It revealed itself in modest form during the investigations on the Trillie Bypass. A small number of pits and post holes, probably the remains of a temporary encampment, were found at Manor East 1. Just as these early Manor East residents were making their mark, a revolutionary new way of life began to gradually take hold. The slow march of agriculture from its origins in the Middle East's fertile crescent had finally arrived in the Lee Valley. It heralded a new era that we today call the Neolithic, or New Stone Age. The Neolithic people of the Lee Valley left behind a total of 11 sites that were uncovered along the route of the n 22 Using their skill with fire and their mastery of stone axes, like the 5,000-year-old polished rhyolite examples discovered at Manor East 1 and Nakawadra Middle 2, they carved fields from the thick woodland that covered the Lee Valley. In those fields, they grew the crops and raised the livestock that allowed them to develop a vibrant community. The valley was now their permanent home, and they erected buildings on the edge of the floodplain to live in all year round. But they didn't abandon all the old ways. Seasonal camps on hillocks within the marshlands, such as those at Manor East 2 and Manor East 4, bear witness to the continued importance of seasonal hunting and gathering to their lives. The only Neolithic structure discovered on the route was laid out at Manor East 1, in the early Neolithic, some 5,800 years ago. There, a prehistoric family selected a slightly elevated south-facing slope to begin their construction project. Their efforts produced a simple sub-rectangular building, a little over 5 metres in length and 2.5 metres wide. Somewhat smaller and flimsier than most rectangular split-oak early Neolithic homes, it may have functioned as an outbuilding. But scattered within the pits and post holes was the detritus of everyday prehistoric life. One produced a stone blade fashioned from rhyolite, one of the multi purpose implements so central to the Neolithic toolkit. Others held the telltale waste from tool production small fragments of flint, chert, and quartz. Still more offered up shards from Ireland's very earliest form of pottery, known as carinated bowls. These handmade round-bottomed pots made using local clays were used for a variety of domestic functions. Agriculture brought a stability and relative affluence to Kerry's Neolithic settlers that allowed them to look beyond just their own daily subsistence. As their society developed, they began to physically express their ties to the land that supported and sustained them. They did so by creating ceremonial spaces where they could venerate both the gods and their ancestors. This took its most dramatic form when communities banded together to build breathtaking monuments to their dead. One of the most important lies just two kilometres from the bypass, where Balikarty Passage Tomb loudly proclaimed these early farmers' deep-rooted sense of place. Sitting atop a limestone reef, it dominated the Lee Valley just as its cousin Newgrange did on the distant Boyne. It was already an ancient structure 4,400 years ago, when the age of stone began to give way to the age of metal, a time when the people of the Lee Valley decided to construct one of the most unique and enigmatic structures ever discovered in the southwest of Ireland. A monumental avenue, the Ballingawen one pit alignment. They were all there From up and down the valley they had come, the women and the men, the old and the young. It was right that everyone lent a hand. After all, this was to be their most holy place. With one last exhausting heave, the enormous wooden post finally rocked into position. It took its place among a corridor of huge carved timbers, a spectacular creation that had taken long months to complete, But now, at last, their sacred avenue was ready. The gateway to the land of their ancestors and to the gods stood open. This story is just one among a multitude of possible interpretations for the most enigmatic archaeological discovery on the Tralee Bypass project. It came at Ballangown 1 where what appears to be a unique site in Ireland revealed itself on the southern side of a low limestone outcrop. There, the archaeologists encountered a double row of pits that formed an avenue orientated towards the east. The largest of these pits was an impressive 1.5 metres long, while others were up to a metre wide. In the prehistoric period, these pits had held fast a series of large timber posts, The avenue's builders had placed each set of posts between five and nine metres apart, and in all, 34 of these aligned post pits were uncovered. More than 30 metres of the original avenue was discovered within the road corridor before it continued on into the neighbouring fields. Almost as soon as this remarkable monument revealed itself, the archaeologists began to seek answers. Chief amongst them were... When had the alignment been built, and what was its purpose? Archaeologists employ a variety of techniques when they are seeking to reveal the age and function of a site. Among the most important, are topology, a method based on the analysis of artefacts, such as stone tools and pottery, and the use of organic remains for radiocarbon dating. But at Ballangown 1... There were no artifacts, and there was no organic material suitable for radiocarbon dating. In their absence, they had to turn instead to findings from other excavations, seeking parallels for this most mysterious of sites. It proved a difficult search. They found that there was nothing quite like Ballangowan in all of Ireland though it did share some similarities with alignments at places like Ballinahatty, County Down, and Newgrange, County Meath. In both cases, those alignments formed a part of major Neolithic ritual landscapes. When they eventually did track down close matches, they found themselves looking across the Irish Sea. Ballangowan I seems to be directly comparable to double pit alignments found in Britain. There they tend to date to the late Neolithic and early Bronze Age, suggesting that the Ballangowan Avenue was constructed over 4,000 years ago. The British evidence demonstrates that they can be hundreds of metres long, enormous undertakings that would have required the labour of large numbers of people. The most similar of all alignments are the ones found in North Yorkshire, where they form part of a sacred landscape that includes prehistoric burial monuments. It is thought that the Yorkshire avenues may have been designed for ritual processions in and through these hollowed spaces. Ballangown 1 may well have served a similar ritual function. The Lee Valley's limestone reefs had become a major focus of burial and ceremony by the early Neolithic period, and monuments like the Balikati Passage Tomb are just two kilometres away. Perhaps the Ballangown descendants of these tomb builders were seeking to add their own legacy to what was an already sacred landscape. Another possibility is that the Ballangown Alignment was looking not towards the earth, but the heavens. 4,000 years ago, the moon would have emerged in line with the avenue every 31st of October. This was an important time of year for prehistoric farmers, as it signified the end of the grazing season. Perhaps they used the avenue to mark this changing of the seasons, a ritual signpost that heralded the commencement of a series of feasts and festivals. Whatever its precise function, there can be no doubt that the Ballangowan Avenue was a location of extreme importance for the local community. They likely gathered there regularly, consistently seeking to renew their commitment to whatever belief system held sway. Adding to its intrigue, the probable date of this compelling and highly significant archaeological site places it at an important moment in the Lee Valley's prehistoric development. That moment announced itself with the arrival in Kerry of one of humanity's great technological achievements. A Thriving Community Bronze Age Settlement One of the most momentous days the Lee Valley ever witnessed dawned a little over 4,400 years ago. The local farmers would have known it was coming. Even in the Neolithic, rumours could run faster than the swiftest of streams. But that foreknowledge wouldn't have dampened the sheer sense of wonder they felt at its arrival. A new and captivating material had finally entered their lives. We can but imagine the excited chatter, perhaps even the awe and disbelief that gripped family, friends and neighbours when they first beheld this most alien of objects. It was the day the first metal appeared in their Kerry home. The arrival of copper and gold objects heralded the beginning of what we now call the Copper Age, a brief period that some 4,200 years ago developed into the Bronze Age. From the outset, Southwest Ireland established itself as an important location for the production of these new metals. Early copper mines were established at sites like Ross Island in Killarney. The first use of metal, along with the arrival of those people with the mysterious, almost magical powers to produce it, ushered in one of the great periods of change in prehistoric Ireland. While much of life remained familiar, a new material culture and new burial traditions began to emerge. The inhabitants of prehistoric Tralee also started to alter the way they constructed their settlements. Early Bronze Age visitors to the Lee Valley would have encountered more farms, more homes and more people than ever before. This population increase, which may have been supported by a warmer climate, left a lasting impression in the ground. Where rectangular houses had been popular with their Neolithic ancestors, these communities preferred to construct distinctive circular dwellings. These structures were giving up their secrets to archaeologists even before the excavations on the Tralee Bypass. By 2011, six had already been investigated in the valley, in Cloughers, Ballangowan and Killerisk. Another four joined them during the Tralee Bypass works. When constructing their homes at Nakawadra Middle 2 and Balangowan 1, the builders had chosen to first erect a circular ring of posts, which they then walled in with hazel wattle. While the inhabitants of Ballinabranach Lower 1, chose the same shape, they opted for a different technique. Instead of posts, they dug a footing trench, into which they set either timber planks or wattle panels. At two of the homes, the families added a porch. At Nakawadra Middle 2, they decided to erect a windbreak, creating a sheltered area just beyond their door. Inside, they enjoyed an area of between four metres and six metres in diameter to call their own. At the centre of each of the buildings lay the hearth, the heart of the home. At Nakawadra Middle 2 and Balangowan 1, Adjacent stakeholes bore testament to long hours tending meats and pottages as they sizzled and bubbled over the flames. As well as having a practical function, these hearths were also the emotional centre of the prehistoric home. Through the years, their warming glow would have reverberated with the sounds of laughter and of tears. While most Bronze Age people dwelt in these circular homes, occasionally they erected rectangular buildings. One was built at Manor East 1 around 2,800 years ago, just as the period was drawing to a close. Some seven metres long and four metres wide, it had an internal roof support that may have allowed for the division of the interior into two rooms. Curiously, while the archaeologists discovered a hearth outside the building, no evidence for one survived inside. Perhaps its owners had used it as a buyer or store, or perhaps they had chosen to raise their hearth on a bed of stones, leaving no trace behind for excavators to uncover thousands of years later. As the Bronze Age progressed, more and more people chose to enclose their domestic spaces using ditches, banks and fences. At Ballangown 1, some 3,500 years ago, the inhabitants used local bedrock outcrops for part of their boundary, enclosing the rest with a shallow ditch. Not substantial enough to keep people out or animals in, it seems their goal was simply to define their domestic space. While no building plan could be discerned inside, the detritus of Bronze Age life lay scattered all about, in pits, post holes and hearths. Numerous other sites produce similar evidence at places like Clash Edmund 1, Balanoric West 2 and Nakhawadra West 2. The material that each produced allowed archaeologists to leave with more than just an impression of the buildings they had lived in, It helped to tell the story of their everyday lives. Everyday Life and Culture in the Bronze Age A little over 3,000 years ago, a Lee Valley farmer returned proudly home to his roundhouse, bearing with him a prized possession. As he carefully unwrapped the small package he had acquired, his family gathered eagerly to inspect the fruits of his journey. When finally freed from the constraints of its leather cover, the new bronze spearhead he turned over in his hands flashed the afternoon sun across the excited, upturned faces of his children. For all of them, this beautifully crafted object was more than just a weapon. It was the embodiment of their family's wealth, their status within the community, something rare and precious enough to be an item of reverence in itself. In 2011, an archaeologist's trowel struck unexpected resistance as its owner worked to reveal the depth of a Bronze Age stake hole at Nakawadra Middle 2. As the soil fell away, it exposed two heavily corroded lozenge-shaped fragments of metal. Specialist analysis later confirmed them as the probable remains of a middle to late Bronze Age spearhead. While the long years underground may have cost the weapon its prehistoric sheen, it had surrendered none of its significance. The discovery of prehistoric metal on an excavation is an extremely rare occurrence. The Nakawadra Middle Spearhead had instantly become one of the most significant artifacts recovered on the project, while metal objects such as this have come to define the copper and bronze Age, Stone remained the primary material for the manufacture of tools. Chert and flint flakes found at Nakawadra Middle Two and Ballowan I showed that the inhabitants were constantly creating new implements. They added these to the array of rubbing stones, pestles and quern stones that were central to their domestic activity. It was towards stone, not metal, that they turned when they sought to cut their meat, work their wood and grind their cereal. They complemented their stone tools with an array of pots Ballangowan I produced sherds of beaker pottery, which, though common in Ireland, is rare in the southwest. Beautifully decorated with impressed cord and comb lines, these sherds are more than 4,300 years old, having arrived in the region around the same time as the knowledge of metalworking. Over the centuries, different forms of domestic pottery evolved. By 3,400 years ago, a planar form was in favour, evidence for which was recovered at sites like Ballinobranach Lower One and Balanoric West Two. The excavations also produced evidence for the types of crops the Lee Valley farmers grew and the livestock they raised. There were few to match the ingenuity and innovation of the residents of Balangown One, They were operating a corn-drying kiln at this location 3,500 years ago, one of the earliest yet known in Ireland. The charred grains at its base were identified as hulled barley, the cereal that dominated across the valley settlements. The creativeness of the Ballangowan residents stretched further when, in the late Bronze Age, they became early adopters of droveways. The 57 metres of droveway uncovered where the bypass intersected its path is, like the corn-drying kiln, one of the earliest known on the island. A major undertaking, it was developed by constructing two parallel banks flanked by double ditches. This created a path along which they could easily drive their cattle, leading them safely towards a secure, seasonally flooded paddock. Based on numbers alone, there was one site type that stood apart from all the others. These were the Burnt Mounds, or Fulactifia, the most common type of monument that archaeologists discover in Ireland. Although constructed from the Neolithic through to the Iron Age, they were most popular during the Bronze Age. Sixteen were excavated along the bypass route, with another 24 lying within a single kilometre of the road. These monuments consist of piles of burnt stones, often associated with a trough that was positioned so as to fill naturally with water. Prehistoric peoples had roasted these stones and then placed them in the water to heat it. They most probably fulfilled a wide variety of purposes, which could have included cooking, textile dyeing or leather processing. Some may even have been used to brew alcohol, or even to bathe or take a sauna. A number of the burnt mounds on the bypass produced particularly early dates. Late Neolithic farmers had built Carlehin I, while four others had been functioning at the dawn of the Copper Age. Some, like the cluster of four burnt mounds in Camp Townland, had been reused over the centuries. The example at Camp 5 was perhaps the most impressive burnt mound excavated. Here the builders had elected to carefully line their trough with planks and stakes of alder, hazel, ash and blackthorn. Though they were likely unaware of it, they were carrying out these refinements just as yet another epochal change lay on the horizon. The coming of iron. The Iron Age Locating the Lives of the Invisible People The young girl shifted her feet uneasily, staring beyond her small fire into the ever-darkening forest. Tonight would be the first night she had ever spent alone, with only the oak trees and woodland animals for company. As night closed in, she fought to resettle her nerves for the task at hand. Slowly... The pride and determination she had felt earlier that evening came flooding back. They had first come when her father broke the news that she would be trusted with managing the pit unaccompanied. She was not going to let him down. Rising to inspect her charge, a smouldering circular mound of wood and earth, she searched its surface for the tell-tale signs that betrayed its temperature. All was well. Hot enough to roast, not hot enough to burn, she thought. Moving back to her fire, she settled down to continue her watch. There were many long hours to go. Such may have been the scene in the woods around Balanoric West 4 some 2,300 years ago. In 2011, archaeologists excavating there uncovered two subcircular Iron Age features. Packed full of oak charcoal. These charcoal production pits represent the remains of a long and laborious process. They mark locations where stacks of wood were carefully covered with a mix of soil and straw before being set alight. By sealing the wood in this way, the burners aimed to control the amount of oxygen that could access the internal fire. That way, the majority of the wood would roast rather than burn thereby creating charcoal. It was a painstaking procedure requiring constant supervision, often over a period of many days. Within one of the Balinoric West 4 pits was the evidence for why this charcoal was being produced. Mixed in with the charcoal were tiny fragments of slag, an unmistakable sign of metal manufacture. For anyone who wanted to smelt or smith iron, a ready supply of charcoal was a vital prerequisite. The iron that has given this era its modern name first arrived in Kerry around 2,700 years ago. Nonetheless, prior to the bypass excavations, only three ironworking sites from the period had been identified in all of Kerry. Aside from the Balanoric West 4 charcoal production pit, a slag pit smelting furnace was also excavated at Ballangowan 1, the first of its type identified in the county. Around 2,200 years ago, metal workers there were exploiting ores drawn from the local bogs and rock outcrops to create iron. In the temporary shelters and windbreaks they constructed around their furnace, they worked this iron into a variety of artefacts and implements for the local community. In stark contrast to the Bronze Age, Iron Age domestic sites have often proved difficult to identify in the archaeological record. One of the reasons for this is that people seem to have used less pottery and constructed fewer archaeologically recognisable enclosures, farmsteads and houses. This has led to them being referred to as an invisible people. As a result, much of what we know about the Iron Age in Kerry comes from large, higher-status monuments like Dunbeg Promontory Fort on the Dingle Peninsula and Knocknaquig Hill Fort near Tralee. Increasingly, new, more modest sites are being unearthed, adding greatly to our knowledge of ordinary life in the Iron Age. Of these, the five sites excavated on the bypass are amongst the most significant. Iron Age people in the vicinity of Tralee did more than just produce charcoal and smelt iron. Evidence for their settlements was identified at Balanabranach Lower 1, Balangown 1 and Manor East 1 and 2. But rather than the identifiable building so typical of the Bronze Age, What emerged instead were seemingly random scatters of pits and post holes. The scant nature of this evidence seems to indicate a change in the way people live their lives. It has been suggested that they had become more mobile, seeking to remain close to the cattle and sheep that were now increasingly important. Even if this were so, cereal production remained significant. Early Iron Age Hulled Barley was preserved in Balanoric West 4, while 2,500 years ago the residents of Balangown 1 took the time to build a series of elevated grain stores to preserve their harvest. The archaeologists found more than just evidence for Iron Age crops at Balanoric West 4. Another of their discoveries was among the most affecting of any on the scheme. The remains of the Iron Age people themselves. Their burials were the latest in a series of internments identified on the project that stretched back through prehistory. They serve as a reminder that, as well as a place of life, the Lee Valley was also a landscape of remembrance. Dealing with the dead in the prehistoric Lee Valley. The prehistoric communities of the Lee Valley lived their lives in the shadow of their dead. They had begun to construct impressive permanent monuments to departed kith and kin during the Neolithic period. As the centuries passed, these monuments gradually developed into an imposing ceremonial landscape. The living who largely made their homes in the valley's lower reaches, had only to cast their eyes towards the limestone reefs for reminders of their ancestors. Some visible elements of this landscape of the dead still survives, at places like Balikati Passage Tomb, or in the cairns that stand vigil below the summit of Nakawadra Mountain. The funerary sites discovered on the bypass route developed in the wake of these Neolithic beginnings. The physical remains of Kerry's prehistoric residence emerged at three different sites. By the Bronze Age, cremation had become the main burial rite in Ireland. Such cremations were discovered at Balinorik West 3 and Manor East 1, with Iron Age cremations at Balinorik West 4. In seeking to tell their story, Archaeologists had to marry what they had learned during the excavation with painstaking specialist analysis conducted afterwards. The earliest of the cremations emerged from a small subcircular pit at Balanoric West 3. More than 3800 years ago, the remains of an adult and child had been interred there, resting within an upturned pottery vessel known as an urn. Analysis by pottery specialist Dr. Owen Grogan revealed the significance of this burial. His detailed inspection of the urn's form and decoration betrayed to him that this was an inverted encrusted urn, a part of the vase tradition. This is a classic form of early Bronze Age burial across much of Ireland, but is comparatively rare in the Southwest. Indeed, Owen's efforts confirmed Balanoric West Three to be the first known example from all of Kerry. Two more Bronze Age cremation pit burials were excavated at Manor East One. Here, only one person was buried in each pit, one of whom had been placed within an inverted domestic pot. Both had died in adulthood, around three thousand three hundred years ago during the Middle Bronze Age. Paleo-environmental specialist Dr Scott Timpany examined the residue surrounding the cremated bone. In doing so, he discovered the charred remains of the funeral pyre that had sent these individuals on their final journey. Scott was able to determine that the bodies had been placed on a specially selected bed of oak, ash and blackthorn branches. Traces of ash and blackthorn trunks indicated that they had been used as fuel to feed the flames. Remarkably, his microscope even uncovered charred hazelnut shell and barley grains that may have been placed on the pyre by mourners as food offerings. The greatest number of prehistoric burials came to light at Ballinoric West 4, here, the excavation team led by James Hessian uncovered an Iron Age funerary monument known as a Ring Ditch. Common through much of the prehistoric period, this example consisted of a penannular shaped ditch that enclosed an area 4.25 metres wide. Originally, it would have been surrounded by an external bank with a mound or cairn at its centre. First built more than 2,350 years ago, it remained an important funerary site for more than 300 years. By the excavation's end, James's team had uncovered a total of ten cremation burials. Some had been laid to rest in the interior, some within the ditch, and still more in small pits surrounding the monument. Poignantly, one had even been buried with six cobalt-blue glass beads that they had worn on the pyre. Perhaps as part of a bracelet or necklace. The fragments of cremated bone were examined by Project Osteoarchaeologist Carmelita Troy. The range of analysis she undertook on the human remains revealed much about the burial process. She spotted distinctive fissuring on the Balinoric West forebone, indicating that the cremations had occurred while the flesh was still attached. The oxidisation of the remains told her that the funeral pyres had been maintained at a furious heat, which exceeded 800 degrees centigrade. Indeed, so thoroughly had the remains been cremated that it was only possible to determine the age and sex of one individual, an adult male. But there were other stories for Carmelita to pursue. One of them was linked to the quantity of the bone. Taken together... It suggested that only two of the burials contained the cremated remains of complete bodies. All the rest were what are referred to as token deposits, where only a small portion of the cremated remains is interred. This type of burial was common. It is thought that these partial remains may have served as a representation of a whole individual, perhaps a respected individual who was specially chosen to interact with the ancestors. The scientific investigations conducted by the archaeological team produced impressive results at Manor East 1, Balanoric West 3 and Balanoric West 4. Their combination of careful excavation and specialist analysis has drawn back the veil to reveal more about how people parted with their dead in Bronze and Iron Age Kerry. This type of scientific approach can do more than provide insights into cultural practices and traditions. As we will discover, it can also help us reconstruct entire landscapes, sometimes across millennia. Rediscovering a Past Environment At first glance, one of the most precious forms of archaeological evidence can seem like the most humble. They depart the site in often unflattering circumstances, lying concealed within large bags filled with soil and earth. These bags, known as soil samples, are a common and constant feature of almost every excavation. Once they take their leave of the field, they make their way to water-filled processing tanks, where their valuable cargo is finally revealed. From amidst the mass of mud, a treasure of environmental remains materialises in the form of charcoal, charred cereal grains and charred seeds. When placed in the hands of specialists and combined with previous studies of ancient pollen drawn from Kerry's lake beds and peatlands, these tiny survivors allow us to chronicle millennia of environmental change. These biofacts and ecofacts bring into focus an epic story, some 15,000 years in the making. It began when the last ice sheets retreated from Kerry and the Lee Valley, leaving behind a denuded landscape ripe for colonisation. Slowly, plants, small bushes and trees began to advance. By 11,000 years ago, scrub woodlands of juniper and dwarf birch held sway, supported by a cast of grasses, shrubs and herbs. By 8,000 years ago, these too had been driven to the margins. By then, large deciduous woodlands had wrested control, enveloping the countryside in oak, hazel and elm, willow and pine. It was into these great forests that Kerry's first Mesolithic hunter-gatherers stepped more than 6,500 years ago. It was not until 6,000 years ago, with the arrival of the Neolithic's first farmers, that humans started to have a lasting impact on this vast canopy. In prehistoric Tralee, They turned to the oak and hazel woodland that surrounded them as a source of food, fuel, and as building material. Though they cleared some trees for their animals and crops of wheat and barley, the forest remained an important source of nutrition. For thousands of years to come, locals would turn to the woodlands near the River Lee for wild foods like hazelnuts, wild apples and pears, berries and herbs. The Kerry pollen records indicate a major upsurge in woodland clearance about 4,500 years ago, just as the first copper tools began to appear. The integral role of timber in early metal production had made trees increasingly vulnerable. As agriculture intensified and the population increased, some species struggled to cope. Around 4,000 years ago, pine declined precipitously across the island the victim of both land clearance and an increasingly wet climate. In its place, blanket bog began to form. By the Middle Bronze Age, 3,600 years ago, the residents of the Lee Valley were living in a more open landscape, with many of their farms located on open heathland. The course of the Bronze Age also brought a change in crop preference, with local farmers increasingly favouring hulled barley at the expense of the naked variety. While archaeological evidence for the Iron Age can prove enigmatic, the pollen record shows that woodland clearance was continuing apace. Pine declined again 2,000 years ago, and in many places it never recovered. Nevertheless there were still large areas of mixed woodland in and around the Lee Valley, where locals exploited a variety of species. It is even probable that some woodland recovered following the Iron Age clearances. Oats and the ever-present Hold barley were part of a landscape of livestock and cereal farming that continued to ramp up into the early medieval period, beginning more than 1,500 years ago, when hold barley, wheats and probably spelt and rye proved popular. However, the River Lee and its tributaries remained a woodland realm, where pockets of alder and birch clung on. 700 years ago, during the high medieval period, the people of the Lee Valley were carefully managing their woodland, employing techniques like coppicing to increase yields. This was also the time when the first non-native trees, such as beech and walnut, were deliberately introduced into the country. The relentless pressure that the post-glacial forests had been subjected to since the dawn of the Neolithic reached its culmination in the 17th and 18th centuries. This was when the last areas of major woodland were targeted for a range of industrial activities, such as charcoal production. In an effort to re-establish some of what was lost, managed woodlands began to emerge in the 18th and 19th centuries, some of which still survive to this day. It is through this ancient environmental evidence that we can best understand the genesis of our own modern landscape. These tiny, sometimes microscopic objects tell the origin story of the agricultural patchwork of fields that we see in the Lee Valley today, representing just the latest chapter in an ongoing environmental narrative that began so many millennia ago. Stepping outside the fort, early medieval settlement. The ghosts of early medieval farmers surround us in modern Ireland. Despite the passage of more than a thousand years, something of the life of these ordinary people endures in our daily experiences. Their legacy catches the corner of our eye as we travel the country's highways and byways, offering us fleeting glimpses of the past seen between fence posts, or through gaps in the ditch. That legacy comes in the form of their defended farmsteads, the preserved fortifications of earth and stone that they left behind. Some 50,000 of these ring forts, cashels and other contemporary enclosed settlements fill the Irish countryside. Constructed across more than seven centuries between the coming of Christianity in the 5th century and the Norman arrival in the 12th century... Together they allow us to enjoy one of the best preserved early medieval settlement landscapes anywhere in the world. The Vale of Tralee, where the ringfort homes of dozens of early medieval families can still be seen scattered up and down the valley, is no different. When a past apparently remains so visible, what new information can excavations like those carried out on the route of the bypass possibly hope to reveal? The answer lies in what remains unseen, buried just beneath the sod. Of the 11 early medieval sites uncovered on the project, just a single one, a double-ditched enclosure at Ballinorik West 2, was enclosed. Initially constructed around the 7th century and re-fortified around 1,000 years ago, this previously unknown ring fort once enjoyed dramatic views towards Sleedmish, the Dingle Peninsula and Mount Brandon. Although it almost certainly functioned as a homestead, unfortunately, little in the way of domestic evidence survived within its interior. Instead, it was the unenclosed sites that revealed the most about early medieval life and landscape in the Lee Valley. At Manor e 7... Archaeologists uncovered the 1500-year-old efforts of a local farmer to ford a long-forgotten stream channel. His labours preserved in cobblestone and wood. The laborious agricultural process that consumed so much of the early medieval day came to life at Ballanore West 3, Ballanore West 4, and Ballangown 1. There, the remains of corn-drying kilns, once filled with hulled barley, reveal the effort required to preserve the harvested grains and prepare them for processing. Balinoric West IV also revealed the industrial talents of the local community. Sometime in the 5th or 6th century, they built a rare slag-tapping furnace to produce the iron they needed to make tools to work the land. The chronicle of skilled craftwork and ornamentation was told through individual objects. At Manor East 1, a pit gave up a bone needle or weaving tool that had once been put to work in creating and repairing textiles. At Nakawadra West 2, a beautiful, translucent, amber-coloured glass bead was discovered. We Surely sorely missed when it was misplaced. The ancient loss of this prize adornment became our gain as it lay hidden to await rediscovery in the 21st century Perhaps the most compelling early medieval story came from the excavations at Nakawadra Middle 2 and Ballyngown 1 Rather than the narrative of those who had made their homes behind earthen banks what dominated here was the tale of those who dwelt beyond the ringforts wooden palisades At each site, positioned entirely exposed and in the open, excavators uncovered the remains of a small, oval-shaped post and wattle building. The Nakawadra Middle II structure had first been built between the 5th and 7th centuries, while the slightly larger Ballangown I example had been erected between the 10th and 12th centuries. Though separated in time, both these families had likely led similar lives, lives that were markedly different to that of their Ringfort dwelling neighbours. In an effort to understand why these people lived outside the Ringfort's gates, the archaeological team turned to Ireland's early law tracks. From their preserved pages emerges details of a highly stratified, class-based society. If the residents of Nakawadra Middle or Balangown hoped to dwell within a fort, they had to belong to one of the free classes. These were the Boera, or Cow Freeman, the Okerer or Young Freeman, and the Fair Midboth, or Man Between Huts. Clearly, they were not so fortuitous. Instead, these homes may have been those of the semi-free cottagers or labourers, that made up the Bothoch or Fudger classes. Perhaps they may even have belonged to the unfortunate lowest rank of society, the Saint sinclair condemned to eke out their existence as hereditary serfs. Buildings such as these are unusual in the archaeological record and offer us a rare insight into the experiences of the lower ranks of early medieval society. Together with the other discoveries on the project, they serve as a reminder that, impressive as they are, our visible early medieval monuments represent just a single element of a fascinating, complex archaeological landscape. Becoming Kerry, the post-medieval landscape. Sometime in the early 1400s, a local man set about constructing a wooden platform at Manor East 4. Carefully trimming the alder branches he carried with him, he pinned them in the ground, there to fulfil some long-lost purpose. With their discovery in 2011, these modest remains became the only high medieval archaeology identified on the route of the bypass. Nonetheless... The centuries immediately before and after this medieval carryman set out with his wooden burden were dramatic ones for the valley, the county and the country. It was a time when the great Anglo-Norman Fitzgeralds of Desmond, the founders of Tralee Town, came and went. It was also a period when war ravaged the countryside as a succession of catastrophic conflicts engulfed the island in the 16th and 17th centuries. When the cannons finally fell silent, a new Anglo-Irish social order had been established. The changes they wrought on the landscape during the 18th and 19th centuries brought great advancements in infrastructure and land use. But for multitudes, they would also be a harbinger of famine, hardship and sustained immigration. It was into this changing landscape that the mapmakers of the Ordnance Survey arrived in 1841. One of the townlands they visited that year was Lismore. As they hauled their survey equipment along the roads and through the fields, they could not fail to notice the local big house rising away to the south. But these men were just as concerned with the humble dwellings of Lismore's ordinary tenants. Their homes were concentrated in the northern part of the townland, huddled together in the midst of a small patchwork of fields and outbuildings. As they went about their work, the surveyors likely shared pleasantries with some of the inhabitants, people like the Savages, the Collins or the Aherns. What none realised was that this map, so carefully prepared, would be a final recording of a settlement that was facing its doom. By the time the next set of mapmakers came around 50 years later, all they would meet were silent green fields. When the archaeologists came to Lismore, the remains of three of these vernacular houses awaited them. Excavations revealed that they had been between 12 and 16 metres in length, some 4.5 metres in width. They had been cast up using unmortared sandstone and their only floor was one of packed clay. Inside each were the remains of a hearth. This had been the centre of life in the building, used for cooking, for warmth and for socialising. The often large families that congregated around these fires had occupied only a portion of the building. Of the two internal spaces within their homes, they had to make do with the smaller. The larger was given over to the livestock that were so vital to their existence. The poverty of these people was reflected in the artefacts they left behind. Everything was utilitarian. Durable but cheap creamware pottery. Simple buttons and beads. A discarded whetstone. We can never know what became of these inhabitants, but ominously the buildings went out of use in the decades that surrounded the Great Famine. Perhaps they were among the thousands of Kerry people who perished during that great calamity. Or perhaps they were more fortunate, surviving to build a new life elsewhere, far across the seas. While the Lismore Houses highlighted the hardships of 19th century life, other post medieval sites from the project were testament to ongoing endurance and resilience. One building that did survive the famine was a smithy at thrumtaka where a blacksmith once plied his trade. The tools he forged were vital for locals engaged in a constant battle to improve the land. They also turned to the local geology to aid them in that fight. Their ready access to limestone allowed for the production of quicklime, which they used to improve the soil. No less than six lime kilns were discovered on the project. This was but one of a number of stratagems designed to improve their yields. Among the others uncovered were the ubiquitous field drains and culverts that crisscross the landscape. Just as their prehistoric ancestors had taken seasonal advantage of the river floodplain to supplement their economy, Nineteenth-century farmers and labourers sought to do the same. At Camp 1 and Camp 5, seasonal brick-clamp kilns drew on clay from the floodplains to produce bricks for use both at home and for sale in Tralee. Across millennia of change, some things remain constant. In the Lee Valley... One of those constants has been the importance of the river and its floodplain. The archaeological excavations revealed how another constant, the agricultural tradition that has dominated Kerry for some 6,000 years, has simultaneously been the greatest driver of change. The excavations on the bypass have unravelled that story, told through the countless generations who impacted the valley. Each of them have contributed in their turn towards the creation of the landscape that surrounds us today. Conclusion For more detail and analysis of the archaeological sites discussed in this audiobook, you can explore the TII Heritage Series book about the excavations entitled... In the Vale of Tralee, the archaeology of the N22 Tralee Bypass, edited by Patricia Long, Paul O'Keefe and Isabel Bennett. You can also find more information about the archaeological sites investigated along the route of the N22 Tralee Bypass and elsewhere in a series of publications by Transport Infrastructure Ireland. You can discover more at TII.ie. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the story of the archaeology of the Tralee Bypass. This audiobook was written by Damien Shields and edited by Neil Jackman with the support of Paul O'Keefe and Ronan Swan of Transport Infrastructure Ireland. The story was narrated by Gerry O'Brien and recorded at Bluebird Studios with sound engineer Declan Lonnigan and producers Roisin Burke and Tara Clark. You can find more audiobooks and audio guides from our website at apartheritage.ie.